And as we turn to scripture again, let's uh, pause and just ask for God's help as we consider and reflect on his word in relation to our lives. Let's pray. Well, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truths of these songs we've been singing in your praise and to encourage each other in faith. And we pray that as we know Jesus' redeeming work in our lives, so we would be equipped to live for your praise and glory as Jesus' faithful disciples in this time and place in which you've placed us. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, we continue our series this morning in the small book of James uh, towards the end of the New Testament. And uh, James, very much a pastoral letter, as we've seen in our previous weeks and as Tews led us into it, uh, with this quite straightforward, even blunt speaking uh, from James, the elder, it seems, of the church in Jerusalem and Jesus' half-brother. As he gives his pastoral guidance and counsel and exhortation uh, in this letter, it really is corresponding to some of the things we read, thank you, Diana, in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall send stand in his holy place, done with clean hands, a pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Really, as we think with James, as he addresses the church in his day, scattered Christians, probably with some Jewish background, he's seeking to guide them in this understanding of what it means to be disciples of Jesus, to have clean hands and a pure heart. So his pastoral guidance very much then corresponds with our church theme for 2021, living from a heavenly perspective. Although James strikes us as being someone who's very uh, practical, and in that sense, earthly, that earthly living is very much shaped by the heavenly perspective, the perspective is living as those who are disciples of Jesus, by no means perfect people, but certainly redeemed people and people who desire to be perfect, just as he says up in verse 4 of chapter 1, uh, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So James is a very pastoral letter, uh, probing, practical, I think in many ways unsettling. If we don't at some point feel a little bit nettled uh, by the things that James has to say to us, I, I wonder if we're listening very closely. But James does, doesn't want to just leave us there. He doesn't want to just disturb the comfortable. He wants to comfort those he disturbs by pointing them to what is fruitful, faithful, living lives shaped by the gospel. So this is a pastoral letter. And as we come now to the end of chapter one, we almost see this chapter as a patchwork quilt. Uh, James seems to be leaping from theme to theme to theme, from issue to issue uh, very quickly. And in fact, uh, all of these are going to be picked up subsequently in chapters two through five for more full reflection and even more 
pointed application. So this first chapter very much has this introductory feel. And as we come into the last uh, part of the chapter, verses 19 to 27, which is our passage this morning, uh, this kind of patchwork continues as we see James moving from talking first of all about the ecosystem that is the nexus, the connection between sin and speech, and then transitioning and in contrast to that, the life of true religion, which is it, which uh, brings out both the embrace of pain, uh, the visiting of the orphan and the widow and their affliction, and also the rejection of stain, uh, the stains of the world that can uh, so easily entangle us, as the writer to the Hebrews has it. So I'll think about the passage in these uh, three sections, the ecosystem of sin and speech, and then uh, the true religion that James contrasts with it. But let's first of all then read our passage and then we'll think our way through it and feel the force of Pastor James's uh, words probing and perhaps unsettling our lives. So James 1, beginning at verse 19. Know this, beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of that word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. Well, this brings us then to the end of chapter one, uh, the opening section of James's letter. And very important, I think, to hear that James is addressing Christians. He'll have some hard things to say to us, but it's important to hear as he, as we hear him address us in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Uh, this is very much a writing of a Christian pastor to a dispersed Christian congregation. And so when he uh, has some hard things to say, we need to remember that he's, he is addressing Christian people. 
the church, of course, isn't a gathering of those who are perfect, but it is a gathering of those who are redeemed. And people who are now redeemed desire to be perfect people, as we saw in verse 4 already mentioned uh, briefly as I began. Well, let's then look at these uh, essentially three things that uh, James brings into view for us. One that he spends uh, some time on, and which gives the title to our sermon, Hearing and Doing the Word, uh, but really has to do with this ecosystem, this interrelated connectivity between speech and sin. Uh, that really takes us from verse 19 into verse 26. So it's quite the lion's share of our passage this morning. James is clearly quite concerned about the capacity of our speech to be undisciplined and to lead us astray. And there's some interesting uh, contrasts in this and these few verses. Notice how speech and anger are connected in verses 19 and 20. And notice how in resisting that and having disciplined speech and uh, rightly ordered speech, uh, there's also a putting away of filthiness and rampant wickedness. Uh, it's not a connection that we immediately see. Why is it that, that putting away wrong speaking should also be resistance to and putting away filthiness and rampant wickedness, which are an impediment to God's word doing its saving work in our lives. Well, that's, that's why I call it an ecosystem. It's, it's really a set of interconnected things, but for James, it has a focal point on words which are undisciplined. Now, there's different ways in which our speech can be sinful, in fact, I just want to read a brief section from a, a actually a fairly dense scholarly article. Fear not. I, I hope this won't be dense and scholarly. Uh, but James Webster wrote a, a fascinating piece called Sins of Speech, which I actually heard him give as a lecture at New College back in the day. Uh, and he has a, a fascinating brief paragraph in which he sets out like a skillful surgeon, a sort of diagnosis of ways in which our speech can go awry, our speech can go wrong. So just briefly, he characterizes speech in two categories, speech towards God and then speech towards our neighbor. And it can be sinful when our speech against God are sins such as blasphemy, cursing of God. But interestingly also, those sins which are a defect in which we do not heed the command to confess, to praise, to invoke God, but remain locked in silence. And he speaks also, Webster does, of sinful speech against our neighbor, which can on the one hand be sins such as making false accusations, bearing false witness, pronouncing unjustly, which he sort of brings under a legal category. But he thinks of, finally, ways in which that we speak simply to or about others, perhaps our everyday speech. And here our speech can go wrong when we, our speech seeks to damage or destroy a neighbor's reputation, defaming, detracting, 
gossiping, ridiculing. Or those forms of our common speech which undermine our community life by deceit, lying, hypocrisy, boasting, and flattery. And finally, those forms of speech which are simply quarrelsome and so discord. Well, it's quite a careful analysis and very comprehensive diagnosis of forms of sinful speech. And I think these are sort of lying underneath what James has to say, why it is that we should be not slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger, but quick to hear, slow to speak, and so also slow to anger. There's a, an, a further curious aspect to this first section, and that is, although our sins of speech, we think so often, can do damage to the community, or they can be sinful towards God, what James highlights, at least at two points, is that they can damage us. Notice the way he says that uh, in verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious, think about that word again in a moment, does not bridle his tongue. He deceives his heart. And this person's religion is worthless. Again, the ecosystem of speech and sin. But in its capacity for self-deception. As I've thought about this, I, I, this is a point at which I think it can be quite unsettling. There's a lot of Old Testament background informing what James has to say and we, certain things from the Old Testament come to mind here. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove me far from falsehood and lying. The psalmist's prayer. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And why should this be? Well, I think because as the prophet Jeremiah put it, the heart is deceitful above all things. And there is a mismatch then when our inner life, uh, our, our speech and our actions pull apart. When the words that we sing, perhaps in the great hymns which we love to sing, uh, and songs, uh, in which they don't match the life that's using those words to give praise to God. It's the way in which the, some of the great prophets, Isaiah, uh, Amos, Hosea, all spoke of ways in which God didn't want to hear the praise of his people because it didn't match the lives of those who were seeking to give this praise. It wasn't enough that they were the right words if the lives uttering them were not commensurate, did not match the words that were being used. And so it's a caution to us, not only in our worship, but in our, in our prayers, in our praise, and so on. So in all this, I think there's a capacity for our speech to be self-deceptive. If we don't put a bridle on our tongues and think with care and speech and speak with care. James then is pointing us to speech which is honoring to God 
honest to self, helpful to others. And as he moves through into the next section, he thinks about this in terms of religion. We've read the verse already, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Well, just to mention briefly, why is James so happy to talk about religion here? And maybe it's another way in which we think, hmm, James is maybe a little bit of a suspect letter. Why? Why doesn't he talk about faith? Why is he talking about religion? Well, what does James mean by religion? He means that set of beliefs and practices which orders our life before God and in the world. That set of beliefs and practices which inform, which structures our life before God and our life in the world. The Greek word he uses here is one which means the external and active, the, the outworking part of piety, of faith. So it's important to see when we're thinking about being not only hearers, but also necessarily doers of the word, that it's this combination that James has in mind when he speaks of religion. Reflecting on how inner commitments of faith relate to outer activities of faith, of faithful people. Well, James says then that uh, an unbridled tongue undermines that uh, religious life that rightly connects our beliefs and our practices. But he goes then on to contrast that in, in verse 27 with two things uh, which he, in which he finds religion pure and undefiled before God the Father. And they form an interesting pair again. On the one hand, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. On the other hand, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we'll take each in turn, but I think helpful to see the contrast between them. When he's talking about visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, it, it has to do with going out, a kind of active, outward activity. But in fact, the, the, the second, the counterpart to that, to keep oneself unstained from the world is a, is a holding back, is a resisting, is a rejecting of something. So they form an important contrast and, and again, uh, implicitly uh, bring home to us how important discernment is in the life that's faithful. Are, are we those who are to be going out and engaging are those to be holding back and resisting? It takes discernment. And that's why we'll think about them just for a few minutes uh, individually as well. Well, the first one then, religion that's pure and undefiled, that is, actions lived before God and in the world which rightly display faith, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Well, in the New Testament, there is quite an emphasis on widow care. Of course, in the book of Acts, which we've studied in the past, the issue of widow care was the thing that caused the first division in the church in Jerusalem back in Acts 6. Why the widows of one community were being passed over 
it seems, at the expense of widows in the other community. And in 1 Timothy 5, won't go into that now, but again, the, the matter of, orf, uh, of widow care was a, a large concern as Paul wrote to Timothy about how the churches should be rightly structured and, and pastored. Of course, this corresponds deeply with the Old Testament concern, which we see throughout the Old Testament, but in Old Testament law, in the Psalms, and in the prophets, for concern for the vulnerable, the weak, who are often, the shorthand for these is the uh, trio, the widow, the orphan, and the alien, the stranger. And uh, why should this in particular then be picked out by James as religion that's pure before God the Father. Well, I think think we see the key to this, among other places, in Deuteronomy. Moses is on the plains of Moab. He's addressing the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he, among many other things, has this to say to them. This is Deuteronomy 10, 17 and following. It says, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. So it makes the point quite simply, in reaching out, in visiting, and actively seeking out and coming to the aid and assistance of those who are in affliction, that is to display the very character of God. This is how the psalmist puts it. Sing praise to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh. Rejoice before him. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God is in his holy dwelling. It's in Psalm 84. So rather than simply being an item of social justice, James is saying that the rightly ordered life, living out its faith before God in the world, is one which displays this character of God to go out and seek orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, of course, in our day and age, we have social agencies that do this, don't we? We, we have a, a kind of social net of care. And yet I don't think that's it's simply the case that the church says, oh, the the government does that now. No, it's, it's still the case that we as Christians are called upon to be those who think, well, who are the weak, the marginalized, the vulnerable, who I can go and visit? It might be a widow, an orphan, or even more, shouldn't say even more likely, but of course there's many refugees who've come to live in, in this city and in this land. But there's also those who are marginalized in a community, even like a community as small as this one. There'll be those who are on the margins, uh, those who don't find themselves embraced or those who are neglected 
And James is simply saying that this is an that expressing one's faith uh, that that uh, it's pleasing to God when there's the embrace of the one at the margin. If we were in a crowded room, the one sitting in the corner with no one to talk to, being the one who goes to that one and says, "How are you today?" Well, perhaps opportunity for more regular gatherings will bring that. But in the meantime, uh, let's be thinking with some care and creativity about how we can be those whose religion is pure and undefiled before God in in going out and visiting. Well, the last thing, and finally, the thing that James says is it is this counterpart, not a going out, but a holding back and resisting. Keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, this again, can can give us some questions, because when we read about the world in the Bible, it has very different character. And I think it's important for us to see that at a kind of basic level, the world shows up in two two ways uh, in the Bible. When seen from the perspective of God's redemptive transformation through the sacrifice of his son, The world is an object of love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son in John 3.16. And we do see that the world is an object of love in this sense. When it's the object of God's redemptive transformation through the sacrifice of his son. That's one way in which the world is seen. There is another way in which the world is seen in the Bible, and that is when it's seen from the perspective of the hostility and rebellion of the world against this God who saves, against its creator, and in which case the world is seen as an object of judgment. Now, I think as James speaks of the world, not only here, but elsewhere, this is the way in which he's, this is the perspective he has in mind as we'll see in a few weeks' time. James 4, verse 4 says, You adulterous people, speaking to Christians, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So the context then is is important to see, that it's that of disordered self-indulgence. And James gives us a clue about what this kind of holding back and resisting involves when he uses that word unstained. Keep yourself unstained from the world. It's only used three or four times in the New Testament. And the other times that this word unstained is used, it's when the writer is making a a relationship correlating Jesus sacrifices the unstained, unblemished Lamb of God with the lives of his redeemed people. It's especially Peter who uses it this way. Conduct yourselves as ransomed people, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. That's the word unstained here. And so, If the orphans and widows was a call to display the character of God, the visiting of orphans and widows, then this 
aspect of being unstained by the world is is a call to be Christ-like, for the character of our Redeemer to be born in the lives of those who are redeemed. Of course, the probably the clearest place to get a sense of this being unstained by the world is in Jesus' own prayer for his people in John 17. He prayed first for his disciples and then those who would believe after them. And in John 17, Jesus prayed, I have given them, those who believe in me, your word. The word which can save you, as James has said. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So I think we see now the power of the contrast between displaying the character of the God that goes out and reaches out to the widow and orphan, and the one that holds back and is unstained by the world, that in a sense has an aspect of resistance to it. Well, it's time to wrap up uh, these reflections, I think, and I, I do it this way. I think James's unpacking for us of the ecosystem of sin and speech and the character of true religion really gives us a, a comprehensive answer to the question of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In James's counsel, his pastoral guidance for us, living it from a heavenly perspective, we might even say, it involves these three factors of having disciplined speech, rightly ordered speech, which in James's thinking has to do with our relationship with ourselves. Disordered speech has the capacity for self-deception when our lives and our speech are not in step. Disciplined speech, care for the vulnerable, this going out and active outgoing relationship with our neighbors and those who are at the margins of our communities. And unstained by the world, a very, well, a global sense in which how we live reflects uh, the, the purity of Christ and being in the world, transforming it, but not transformed by it. Ourselves, our neighbors, the world. A a very comprehensive view of what it is to have true religion, a a faith that acts in these ways in accordance with the character of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, these things do point us to Christ in a very fundamental way, don't they? It's a striking thing that James, the half-brother of Jesus, seldom names Jesus himself in the course of these five chapters. But I think everywhere we look in it, we see him holding up a Christ-like character, life, shape, that informs all of what he says. Ordered, disciplined speech. Jesus, whose words, and whose silences always spoke truth. Jesus, who went farther than anyone to 
seek out the needy, to visit them in their distress, who came from heaven to earth to show the way. Jesus, who lived in the world, but was never stained by it in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin, as the writer to the Hebrews put it. So we look to Jesus and and the counsel and uh, encouragement and exhortation of Pastor James. We ascend the holy hill and stand in that holy place with him. And important questions for us to reflect on today and in the weeks ahead. Is my speech growing ever more truthful, transparent, trustworthy to God, to others, importantly to myself? The structuring of inner and outer life reflected in the words we speak. I've felt the claim of this as I've reflected on the passage this week. Is my life and lifestyle growing outgoing in caring for the vulnerable, the weak, the poor? Perhaps not even in a grand way, but even in uh, setting one's thoughts and actions in connecting with those who are marginalized, who are shunned. Is my sense of discernment, thirdly, growing ever sharper so that I'm able to live in the world but not be stained by it? I think it's so easy for us to be mimicking the world and for the world so to inform what we do that the world shapes us rather than us shaping, transforming the world by bearing witness to the transforming power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus kept some pretty rough company, didn't he? But he transformed it. They they didn't transform him. So there's an encouragement from us, from Pastor James, then to receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this sharp soul surgery that Pastor James gives us this morning. We pray for each other. We pray for ourselves that in this matter of disordered speech, Lord, we might learn what it is to to, uh, hear quickly, to speak slowly, not to seek first our self-interest, but to speak uh, transparent words of integrity born of a life rightly related to you. May we grow alert in seeking out those who are distant and whose lives are afflicted in whatever way that might be. Give us the capacity for compassion that informed your own son who did not think equality with God something to be clung to but who emptied himself. And we pray that we would have keen discernment. Lord, you call us to live in the world, but we don't want to be shaped by it, by its power to distort and to lead to deception and to idolatry. Uh, We desire to be people who live purely and rightly and well in this world, transformed by your word in us, and that word doing its work through us to touch the world around us. And so we thank you for your saving ways and for the hope we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray.
Amen.